I remember that we used to go swimming, and we would wash the sheep in it, and have a picnic under the trees. I remember the greenery and the clean water, and there was fish. We'd catch fish. This is Mohamed Yazbek. He's deputy mayor of Hausharavka, a village downstream from the Litani River. The Litani is about 106 miles long and is one of the most important water sources in Lebanon. It produces hydroelectric power and water for drinking and irrigation to the Beka Valley, Lebanon's primary agricultural region. Now it's open running sewers. Yazbek grew up in the village with his family. He and many other people living along the Litani say the water quality has plummeted dramatically over the last 20 years. They blame the river for various health issues. In Yazbek's village, there are about 10,000 Lebanese residents, without counting people in the refugee camps nearby. He says there are more than 10 deaths a year and that many people had cancer. And the villagers are getting worried. They told me we don't dare to go to the hospital because we don't want to be shocked with a doctor telling us you have cancer. This is the Undark Podcast. I'm your host, Lacey Roberts. This is a story of anti-refugee sentiment, government inaction, and the cascading environmental and social effects that happen when a once pure river becomes polluted. Julia Terdeau has the story. The death of fish started suddenly. There was more than one possibility we arrived at. It was either poisoning or due to pollution in the water. This is Nasrallah Al-Hajj, who works for the Litani River Authority, or LRA, the public institution that supervises anything that has to do with the Litani River. In April of 2021, Al-Hajj and his colleagues found more than 44 tons of dead fish on Lake Karaon. That's Lebanon's largest artificial lake. It is unclear exactly how the fish died. But El-Hajj suspects many factors that include pollution of the lake. This is not the first time pollution has had such devastating consequences on the Litani's reservoir. Back in July 2016, there was another surge of dead fish that surfaced on Lake Karaon overnight. And three years later, the lake turned bright green when pollution and high temperatures led to an increase in cyanobacteria, an alga that can harm marine life and may be linked with an increased risk of liver cancer. We can't breathe at night, and if you close the windows and turn on the fans, you'd still wake up with an unbearable smell in the house. This is Maha Daher. She was born and raised in Barelias, a village in Vebeka bordering the Litani River. She lives with her husband, Ibrahim, and her daughter, Etab, just a few houses away from her family's home. My colleague Majed Ibrahim and I spoke to Maha about her family's health issues that the Litani might have caused. I have cancer, and my daughter has a disease called Bajat. We're still trying to treat her, but her life is getting harder and harder. And my husband has diabetes and blood pressure problems and other diseases, and the only support we have is God's. We met Maha for the village mayor in Baralias. Discussing cancer can still be taboo in the region, but Maha felt it was important to speak out. She told us she had multiple cancers and surgeries. Her daughter Etab's disease, Besset syndrome, is a rare condition that causes blood vessels inflammation in the body. It's very painful. 
My treatment is expensive, and we only have my husband's income. Maha's family lives in extreme poverty. They take turns to go to the doctors whenever they can gather enough money. And she says, my dad needs to be medically treated before me. And I say, my daughter needs to be medically treated before me. And we push it onto each other. But in the end, none of us do, because we don't have any money. In Lebanon, families like Maha's are hit the hardest in the economic crisis. The crisis had already started when the global pandemic hit. And then last year, on August 4th, 2020, there was an explosion that destroyed parts of its capital, Beirut. Now there are fuel and medicine shortages and terrible inflation. The lira, Lebanon's currency, keeps decreasing in value. In September 2021, the UN estimated that about 74% of Lebanese people live below the poverty line. For Maha's family, it means they can't afford medicine or pay their bills as their health declines. Do you have any idea what the cause is? It's the river. Local residents believe the polluted water is causing a variety of health concerns. But it's a challenge to prove a causal relationship and there hasn't been enough completed research in the region. Dr. Ismail Soukarie, a gastroenterologist and former MP, living between his practice in the Beka and Beirut, is one person who tried to study this. Every weekend, since 25 years, every weekend, summer and winter, except when I am outside Lebanon, I, I go to my village, North Beka, it's not as far, to, to take care clinically of sick patients free of charge. When he was working in Zahle, Beka's capital and largest city, he started to notice something strange in his patients. In about six or seven months, he saw eight cases of stomach cancers. And the cases kept rising. So, in 2001, he decided to start a small study with some students from the Lebanese University. He lost funding, so he started again in 2016 with the American University of Beirut, AUB. Funding stopped again, and he couldn't conclude his study. It needs declaring health emergency in the region. The pollution and the gravity of the situation were undeniable. There was sewage and garbage floating constantly on the river. To explain the pollution, the LRA's Nasrallah El Hajj partly blames the same people politicians and the media are focusing on. They put the refugees just by the river. All of their waste is thrown on the water. This is a common narrative used in Lebanese media and political discourses against Syrian refugees who are often held responsible for the deterioration of the litany. Many Syrian refugees work in the fields around the Beka and live in makeshift habitations on the Lebanese banks that often don't have proper sanitation or any organized way to dispose of waste. The settlements also use illegal piping to pump water or dispose of wastewater if there is no NGO oversight. And this is a growing perception that the Syrian refugees and the Palestinians, to a lesser extent, are taking our water or they are polluting our water and they're competing with us for our water. And this is not a good uh, omen mm. because it is, it is growing. It is not a sentiment that is passing. This is Dr. Nadim Farajala 
the Climate Change and the Environment Program Director of the American University of Beirut's Issam Fares Institute. Since the Syrian war began in 2011, Lebanon has taken in the highest number of refugees per capita worldwide. There are more than 1.5 million Syrian refugees in the country. The sudden increase in population led to community tensions that politicians exploited. Refugees are often blamed nationwide for the issues the country faces. Very few Syrians live in informal country settlements. Mm. Around 17% of those that came to Lebanon do that. But then that leaves 83% of anywhere between 1 and 2 million who have moved into Lebanon who live amongst homes. And this has increased the demand on water and the discharge of sewage water. Overpopulation is often cited as the main burden in the presence of Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Dr. Farajala wants to focus on Syrian living in housing that is connected to the water systems. But these, still, these people still need water, they use it, they flush toilets, they are connected to the network, or if not, they are discharging uh, illegally their sewage, which ends up contaminating and uh, the sources. According to him, the high demand on water either puts a lot of pressure on water treatment plants, already working over capacity, or represents a risk of water contamination, because there is no oversight on this type of housing and their connections to the water networks. The issue of water was there before, right? Yes, 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 yes. But, uh, you know, it's, it's one more layer, and sometimes the layers are thin. This is a thick and heavy layer. It's not inconsequential. The potential for conflict is there and it is rising, and even between communities. We're also looking at the narrative against the uh, refugees that live by the banks. It's the narrative that's most central when you look into the pollution of the Litany River. Yeah, yeah, completely. It that. is also, this is a, a narrative that is used to justify uh, the incompetence and uh, the fact that the state did not do its job. This is Dr. Marie-Hélène Nassif. She is a water specialist and project coordinator for the Rewater MENA project at the International Water Management Institute. MENA stands for Middle East and North Africa, and the project aims to improve the safety of water reuse in the region. Nassif wrote a paper on groundwater governance in the Bekaa. And not only the pollution, also the, the over-exploitation of the resources. Even if the Syrians uh, were not there, this, the problem would not have been uh, less serious, in my opinion. The discourse against Syrians has real consequences. According to reporting by Al Jazeera, in April 2019, the LRA had evicted about 1,500 Syrian refugees from informal settlements on the Litany riverbank so far that year, as part of an anti-pollution drive. Sami Alawiye, LRA's director, as quoted by Al Jazeera, said... I will remove the Syrians or the Lebanese or anyone polluting the river. I would do it again if I find more refugees. According to Nassif, this distracts from the responsibility of other actors. On top of all of that, all the farms on the riverbanks from Baalbek to here, dairy farms, cheese and yogurt packing plants, livestock farms with all their waste, dead animals and all other trash are thrown in the river. This is Nasrallah Al-Hajj again. In the Bekaa, 
There are about a thousand factories, according to Lebanon's 2016 official guide of the Ministry of Industry, although the exact number is unknown because of the many unlicensed industries in the area. They release sewer water directly into the river, along with dead animals and dangerous chemicals. Any factory has a budget plan, and there is filters and sedimentation ponds so that this hazardous material wouldn't reach the running water of the river. Legally, factories are supposed to treat their own wastewater before dumping it into the environment since the 2012 decree. But there are disagreements between local authorities and the centralized government over the responsibility of checking that they do. On paper, what a government's law clearly defines the responsibilities of each government entity's roles around the protection of the Litany River. And while the country's four regional water establishments are supposed to be responsible for waste management, they lack the capacity to take on this role fully, calling on third parties such as municipalities and the Ministry of Energy and Water to carry out that responsibility. This is Assad Zreib, the mayor of Zahle. This Ministry of Environment, Ministry of uh, Industry, these are, they should have people that are uh, responsible about checking if every factory is going by the law or not. So they're not really checked regularly? And they should be rechecked regularly. But they are not? No, no. The Ministry of Energy and Water puts the responsibility on municipalities and other ministries, while local municipalities in the Beka consider it a higher-level responsibility. As a result, most factories are not checked on. They are free to discard waste in the litany with impunity, polluting not only the river, but also the groundwater. The first solution to treat, uh, treat the pollution in the uh, River is to, uh, to make a lot of uh, plants. This is Suhail Rufael, an engineer and head of a wastewater unit at the Beka Water Establishment, or BWE. The BWE oversees water treatment plants in the Beka. In the area, factories that don't have their own wastewater treatment system sometimes redirect the waste to Rufael's treatment plants. Our plants are designed to, uh, to treat domestic wastewater and uh, we are receiving, uh, we are receiving uh, industrial wastewater. That's why you are facing a lot of problems in the, in the process and the treatment, treating. We need to, to uh, every industry to, to make a primary treatment, then release their wastewater to, uh, to plants or, or in the river. Do they do that? Uh, no, that's the problem. According to Rufael, if the factories don't direct their wastewater towards their plants, it goes in the river. So they take on some of the industrial waste to reduce pollution. Because of the amount of sewage water and their lack of resources, the plants can sometimes only treat up to 70% of the wastewater before releasing it into the litany. That was back in May of last year. Then, in the summer, Rufael and his colleagues at the plant faced another problem, electricity cuts. And we are still still operating, but day by day. And until now, uh, situation is is 90% good. But we are uh, we ask uh, we, and we and we still have a little a little bit of of diesel. We are uh, we are operating on our generators. But in the future, what to do? That's why uh, that's what we don't know, because no diesel, no electricity, no money. There hasn't been consistent electricity in Lebanon since the civil war between 1975 and 1990. 
Most houses rely on private generators or neighborhood suppliers who charge an extra fee for electricity during the daily power cuts. Last summer, the country's two major power plants, Der Amar and Zahrani, shut down. Private generators became the primary provider of electricity in the entire country. Soon, the fuel shortages worsened, forcing suppliers to decide between total blackouts, power rationing, or heavy financial losses. Uh, do you think people realize like, the impact on the treatment plant? Yeah, I don't think they know what's, uh, what's, uh, what's happening now and what are facing uh, in the future. They don't know how, how wastewater plants uh, work and operate and what's the problem they are facing. Uh, they don't know. They, we need electricity 24 hours, not no, one hour or two hours and okay, I can, I can cut. No, I need electricity 24 hours. They don't, need, uh, they don't know the process. When Majid and I spoke to Rafael in August last year, he told us the treatment plants he operates in Ubeka had at best six hours of government electricity per day. They need about a thousand liters of diesel every day. That summer, that cost about 20 million lira, funded by local taxes. That's up to $1,175, depending on exchange market rates. In the long term, Rafael hopes the plants will be able to run on solar energy. Some treatment plants are already partially equipped. None of them fully work on solar panels at this time. Uh, you can you can operate uh, about seven, eight, nine, nine hours on 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 solar panel, and the rest of the day you can you can use diesel. Diesel to the plant to work on the on the generators when you have an electricity cut. If we have diesel in our plants, so we can we can operate on generators. But if you don't have diesel, <laughs> we have no solution. More than a third of the operational costs of all four water establishments in Lebanon go into electricity, according to a 2021 AUB study. This limits their capacity to treat water. It also makes access to water more difficult and expensive. So far, Rafael and his colleagues have avoided the total shutdown of the treatment plants in the Beka. If the plants stop working... Lebanon is facing an ecological catastrophe. The sewage water will accumulate in the treatment plants until it overflows, contaminating the rivers and the groundwater, and it could make people sick. But contaminated water is already reaching people's homes and the food they eat. According to a report from 2019 by the Lebanese Agricultural Research Institute, vegetables in the Beka show traces of mercury, arsenic, cadmium, chrome and lead. Historically in the Middle East, farmers have used sewage water when clean water wasn't available. With the current crisis, Lebanon is facing water shortages. Access to treated water is more limited than ever. Many, many, many homes rely on bottled water for drinking supply, but uh, we all shower and brush our teeth and cook. And so, you know, imagine if you're bathing in more contaminated water, you know, and then when in a shower, you will get water in your mouth, uh, you'll get water in your eyes, in your ears, you might get different sorts of infections. This is Farajala again. Water pollution is not exclusive to Rebecca. The Lebanese Agricultural Research Institute also found high levels of nitrate in surface water in the region. Nitrate is a nitrogen compound commonly used in fertilizers and explosives. While it's found naturally in foods and produced by the human body, exposure to unusually high levels may increase cancer risk. Even if the water is treated when it leaves the plants, it runs through old pipes 
that could recontaminate it or come in contact with sewer water. With the pollution and the, the more and more problems with water, how it's going to affect people's health? The availability of medicine being an issue, a simple dysentery which would have been treated by flagell, you know, this antibiotic flagell or any other antibiotic, uh, which is, may not be available, this could be de- deadly. Hoarding of uh, medicines, hoarding of uh, uh, fuel and making it unavailable to run treatment facilities, all of this. All of these are human evil, uh, human uh, behavior. When no medical medications are available, hospitals are running low on supplies, are running low on electricity, etc., then this becomes a major issue. Wow. This is grim. <laughs> yes, it is. But we, we try not to think of it too much. You know, you are asking about the pollution of Litali Basin, right? The worst and most kind and most dangerous kind of pollution, you know what? Lebanon, political pollution. Political pollution. It is, it is the essence of everything. It controls everything. This is Sukari again, who attempted to prove a link between cancer and river pollution. He believes the link is evident, but that nothing is done because the powers in place don't care enough. One of the political powers yani, was not interested in this. Because we were faced difficult, this difficulty, we didn't yani, seek seriously to continue. I, I, I mentioned it in my own way, like I said now. Must you are 11. If, even if you mention nothing will happen. You are 11. During interviews, People laughed or sighed at the idea of change in Lebanon. In Lebanon, nothing moves fast. They don't even move. They don't move. The Litani can't wait for the ministries or Lebanese authorities' action when fish die. It's not a rock or a plastic bottle. It's rotten fish with the smell, the flies, the mosquitoes, the diseases. This is Nasrallah Al-Hajj again. He also felt that frustration with the Lebanese government. And then, in 2018, Alawiyeh became the LRA director. The method changed. At first, we used to say, stop polluting. With this administration, a completely different program is worked on. Alawiyeh wasn't afraid of politicians. Under his leadership, the LRA filed legal complaints against hundreds of factories around the river. In October 2020, the litany was blocked near Yazbek's village, Haushar Rafka. It was filled with cow manure and dairy waste from the Liban Lay plant, one of Lebanon's largest factories, also subsidized by the Lebanese government. Alawiyeh vowed publicly to sue the company and to put back the excrement on the company's land. The LRA's actions were unprecedented. It gave people hope that change could be achieved for the better. The guy uh, did a good job in terms of uh, pointing the attention of the media on the Litani, and also he deposited a lot of complaints against uh, industries that have been for years discharging pollutants without any uh, treatment in, in uh, the different uh, rivers that feed the Litani. 
But again, in my opinion, this came too late. This is Marie-Hélène Nassif again, questioning Alawi's intentions. The Ministry of Energy and Water is affiliated with the Freedom Patriotic Movement, or FPM, the same party as Lebanon's president, Michel Aoun. Alawiye became a director as part of the opponent party, Amal. The FPM was making new projects and an agreement with the World Bank to build the Bisri Dam, supplied partly by Lake Karaun. It was a big project that drew a lot of attention to the FPM and expanded its influence. Even though the Bisri project was later cancelled in 2020, Nassif believes that at the time, it was taking attention away from Alawiye's Amal party. Alawiye wanted to regain the spotlight for his party, and that meant seeking the legal responsibility of monitoring water pollution and taking on mediatized projects. My reading is that this, they felt threatened, they felt they were losing power, so they uh, used you know, the problem of pollution to promote themselves. And it's funny that it came at the same time where the others were uh, getting, uh, getting power, you know. So my, my personal reading is that it's, it's more about competing with the other than really wanting to, to do something. Nassif is from Hamana, a village in the Mount Lebanon region. In 2013, the Ministry of Energy and Water started building the Kaysamani Dam close to the village. Its goal was to store rain and snow water on the Mechite Plateau to prevent seasonal water shortages. The plateau is in the protected zone of the Shahur Spring. Georges Shahin, Hamana's then mayor, rounded up the entire village to protest the construction. Truth is that the dam was built despite our opposition, and no one is suffering the pollution of the groundwater except the people of Hamman. We used to drink from that groundwater and not by water. The Shahur Spring provided Hamana with irrigation and drinking water, but the dam is built on porous soil and leaks stagnant water into the spring, polluting the water. It is also a very dangerous infrastructure for Hamana. The area is highly seismic. An earthquake could make the dam collapse and inundate the village. The village fought against the project. People made posters, organized protests, even created a hashtag, no dam. They blocked the main road leading to the construction site. Construction was stopped temporarily, but the dam was built anyway. This was a very difficult moment for Shahin. To us, the people of Hamena, the Shahur water is like the blood in our veins. And we were very afraid for our water. And maybe I was too emotional about that. During the protest, Shahin started having high blood pressure and heart problems. Two months after the campaign against the dam ended, he needed open-heart surgery. Unfortunately, we know the situation of Lebanese people today. No one is thinking of anything else other than putting food on the table. Who's still thinking about water pollution or the destruction of land or agriculture or architecture? Today, everyone is looking to make ends meet and no one is thinking of anything else. With the rampant corruption and years of stagnation, people hope that help will come from abroad. Yet for decades, international donors and investors have poured hundreds of millions of dollars into fighting pollution for Lebanon's Council for Development and Reconstruction, or CDR, with little results. 
The CDR implemented the Kaysamani Dam project, accepting a $17 million Kuwaiti loan. According to Nassif, foreign investors invested without considering the local terrain. Whether the sewage treatment facilities were connected to a sewage network, or if the municipalities had enough qualified employees and electrical power to operate facilities didn't matter. The Lebanese government still received loans through the CDR for these projects, with no visible improvement. They're also uh, benefiting from this, the international donors. They're, they're giving loans with interest rates, even if it's low interest rates, but still. Uh, they're making their administration uh, uh, function, they're hiring people, they're, they're making money out of all this, they're promoting themselves as, uh, as countries or as institutions or as international organizations. So everyone had something to gain, to, to win out of this. Despite these massive investments, the pollution kept getting worse. In July 2016, the same month, tons of dead fish surfaced on the Karaon. The World Bank had approved a $55 million loan for a project to reduce the amount of untreated sewage going into the Litani and to reduce pollution in the lake, supposed to end in June 2023. As of September 2021, the World Bank rated the overall implementation progress as moderately satisfactory. But, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't have reached this point if... Uh if things were not uh, as badly managed as, yeah. as they are. Yeah. yeah. And nothing can change if the whole political system uh, does not change. And it's, it's a long way. I think that research and information and communicating all this contributes to raising awareness and to bringing awareness Of, of the young generations uh, around these issues. Yeah, we hope so. Uh, and it's it's a, a small contribution, yeah. but it's I think that's that's big, also. Yeah, it's uh, essential. It's it's essential, and it's uh, small initiatives coming together eventually will uh, will bring some progress, and hopefully. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here, Julia. Thank you for having me. So how important of a water resource is the Litani River in Lebanon? Um, so the Litani River is the widest and the longest uh, river in Lebanon, and it crosses it from uh, the north to the south. Um, and it's very important for its national economy, um, not just for the water needs of people around the basin, but also uh, for social needs, industrial needs, and um, also energy needs, and uh, for the ecosystem. It uh, crosses the Beka region of Lebanon, which is the most industrial region uh, in the country. And so just in terms of irrigation, it's hugely important because most of the vegetables and fruits and grains and also livestock is produced there. So uh, all the irrigation needs, if uh, the Litani River is polluted, that water that is essentially sewage water goes into watering the livestock and watering uh, crops. And the vegetables are then transported all over the country. 
So um, it's very important and virtually most of the population in Lebanon uh, is affected by the Litani River, not just people living around. And also uh, the Litani River goes into the Mediterranean Sea. So uh, not just Lebanon, but also countries surrounding uh, Lebanon and the Mediterranean are affected by the river and its pollution. Wow, so it just, it sounds like it is a crucial link to the ecological chain in Lebanon. Um, you talk a little bit about some local activism um, in Lebanon, in particular fighting against the Kesemani Dam. Can you tell us a little bit more about the local activists you met and how they continue despite what they're up against? Uh, yes, so for the Kesemani Dam specifically, um, we talked to George uh, Shahin, who's the former mayor of Hamana. And he's the one who's behind the campaign to save Hamana and protect safe water. So that was to prevent the construction of a dam. And the uh, dam was eventually built. Um, and there hasn't been much update since uh, 2017, except that pollution did rise um, in Hamana. And so when we talked to George about his motivation to start uh, his activism, it was very clear that he cared a lot about uh, the environment and protecting the water and for the quality of life and of inhabitants and a, for them to be able to access clean water. But it was also incredibly stressful and he got a lot of resistance from uh, the government. And he told us that uh, the Lebanese army came to take down posters, for example, um, and that uh, after the dam was built anyway, he had uh, serious health issues. And now that talking about activism in Lebanon from his perspective, he doesn't have a lot of hope in any kind of environmental protection. But there's also a different form of activism uh, with young people. And I actually talked recently to uh, Amani Beaini. Uh, so she's a legal researcher and a peace environment activist, and she's the co-founder of a national campaign to save the Bisri Valley. So just for context, uh, this was a campaign against the Bisri Dam project in the south government of Lebanon. Uh, and there was, in 2014, a loan co-financed by the World Bank of $474 million. And the dam was supposed to help with uh, providing water during droughts in the summer. But uh, activists and generally the Lebanese population was really worried about uh, its polluting and destroying biodiversity. It would have been built on a seismic area and it could have caused more risks uh, for an earthquake, which would be very dangerous for the area. So there was a lot of uproar and um, demonstration, protests and online campaigning and a lot of uh, solidarity. And eventually the funds from the World Bank were frozen in April 2020 and then completely canceled in September 2020. And so when I talked to Amani and her situation, she felt that it was a continuation of uh, 2019 protest of a revolution in Lebanon um, and it was an incredible feeling to have this victory because 
for her and young activists, the Bishidam represented a microcosm of corruption in Lebanon. And uh, he felt uh, as a duty as a Lebanese citizen uh, to continue her activism and to hope for change. That's that's amazing. No, I'm very curious. Like, what did Imani's activism look like? What form did it take? Uh, basically, um, she started simply by uh, creating a Facebook group, and she organized uh, on online campaign and petition. Also, something that was really important to her was uh, the sentiment of solidarity, and so she organized with not just other activists but also people from legal profession and journalists to get a lot of news about the construction of this uh, dam. But it was also at great cost because Amani told me that she put herself physically at risk uh, for her campaigning and that because of the struggle, she eventually lost her job. Well, thank you so much for your reporting, Julia, and thanks for being here. Thank you so much. Bye. Julia Terdo is a reporter based in Lebanon. She's interested in politics, society, and investigative journalism. This episode was co-reported and translated by Majid Ibrahim. Our theme music was produced by the Undark team with additional music in today's episode from Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Jeff Jabour, Nasser Saleh, Eva Debor, Sharbal Sadeh, Dr. Michel Afram. Dr. Karim Aid Sabah, Dr. Raed Azadine, Marhi Wahbi, and Alexandra Mitri. I'm Lacey Roberts. See you next time. <laughs>